If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie. Will you pray with me? You would just not let those ancient Israelites be, Holy One. Despite being slow-footed, despite the complaining, despite the whining, you just wouldn't give up on them. Uh, And to be fair about their complaining, they were living in the middle of a food desert. But you handled it here, manna, or as the text says, when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a fine flaky substance, as fine as frost, which we translate as fine as frog hair. After that, no matter what, every morning the bread appeared, no matter how far or how short the distance they had walked the day before, every morning the bread appeared. No matter how long or how dark the night had been, every morning the bread appeared. Maybe this is what inspired the wisdom of Lamentations. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The Lord's mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, which we have translated into the hymn. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. We are admittedly having a hard time naming new mercies. We are more interested in talking about old wounds. But perhaps the story will remind us to look for the manna, even if it is as fine as frog hair. Like noticing the purple flower on the side of the road or the chance to learn something new the opportunity to do things differently, letting our kids remind us how to play, finding lost treasure in that old box of grandma's stuff, moments for grieving and celebrating and growing and changing, manna indeed. Great is thy faithfulness, Holy One, May you be able to say it of us, too. Amen. The sermon this morning comes from Dolly Parton's song, I Will Always Love You. 
If I should stay, I will only be in your way. And so I'll go, but I know I'll think of you each step of the way. I will always love you. I will always love you. Bittersweet memories, that's all I'm taking with me. Goodbye, please don't cry, because we both know I'm not what you need. I will always love you. I will always love you. I hope life treats you kind, and I hope that you have all that you ever dream of. I wish you joy, and I wish you happiness, but above all this, I wish you love. I will always love you. I will always love you. The scripture lesson also comes from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 22. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. Here ends the readings from several traditions. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. The song isn't always associated first with Dolly Parton. Many people thought it was a Whitney Houston original recorded for the 1992 film The Bodyguard, which remains one of the best-selling singles of all time. To be fair, the first time Dolly heard Whitney Houston's version of I Will Always Love You, she was so moved that she had to pull the car over out of fear of getting in a wreck. For as she said, I didn't know that little song of mine could be done so beautifully, so big, so overwhelming, that I really almost just had a heart attack right there. It wasn't the first time the song had almost given her a heart attack, though. After the song was released in 1974, Elvis Presley made a play to record it himself. His manager approached Dolly with an offer, but it included the stipulation that Elvis would get half of her publishing rights. It was a tough decision, as she recalls. I said, I'm, I'm really sorry, and I cried all night. I mean, it was the worst thing, you know, it's Elvis, and other people were saying, you're nuts, it's Elvis. But something in my head said, don't do that, and I just didn't do it. But I always wondered what it would sound like. I know he'd kill it, don't you? He would have killed it. But anyway, I wouldn't, so he didn't. Then, when Whitney's version came out, I made enough money to buy Graceland. But Dolly did, in fact, write, I will always love you, and despite the assumption that it is about the end of a romantic relationship, it isn't. The greatest country love song ever written was born out of the end of Dolly's professional relationship with her longtime musical partner, Porter Wagner. Porter Wagner led the most successful country music television show of its time, The Porter Wagner Show, and in 1967, he needed a new girl singer. He turned to a 21-year-old songwriter named Dolly Parton, who just recorded her first hit, 
dumb blonde. So began a nearly decade-long partnership that behind the scenes was as contentious as it was commercially successful. Early in her time on the show, Dolly and Porter began recording duets, including 14 top 10 hits and one number one. Porter was their de facto producer-arranger on 13 duet albums, and he also managed and produced Dolly's RCA solo output during the same period. In the world of country music, they were the royal couple. And at every awards show, at every award they won, they would walk up to the stage together, his arm draped around her, and he would accept the award, and Dolly doesn't speak. As she says, I had to be quiet around Porter because Porter was the star. I wasn't allowed to say a lot or I didn't think that it was my place to try. You didn't do that as a woman and you didn't do that as a professional person. It was his show, not mine, until I went out on my own, until I claimed and owned myself. Claiming herself would happen both slowly and at times seeming to be all of a sudden over the seven years Dolly and Porter worked together. In the early 1970s, Dolly was writing at a blistering pace. If you look at her discography in, from 1969 through the mid-70s, her hits include Joshua, Coat of Many Colors, My Blue Tears, and Jolene. One of Porter's best songwriters, Mel Tillis, was quoted as saying, he couldn't keep up with her. He would submit one song and she would submit three. As she began to claim herself, Dolly tried, at first, to stay, hoping to do both the show and some of her own work. But Porter wasn't interested in letting Dolly change anything. For as one of Porter's closest friends, singer-songwriter Marty Stewart says, the thing about Porter is that so many country singers had the pretty little girl singer on their shoulder around Nashville, and they were lord and master. Whatever they said, went. And this was how Dolly and Porter's relationship deteriorated. During this time that Dolly arguably discovered her power, both as a performer and a songwriter, she made the difficult and radical for its time decision to strike out on her own. For this also happened to be a moment in America, as Jad, Jad Abumrad points out. When the divorce rate was doubling, when no-fault divorce laws were popping up all around the country, this was a moment when women could finally leave. Dolly and Porter's relationship was fine as long as she played her assigned part as long as he didn't feel threatened by her gifts. But Dolly couldn't do that, and Porter couldn't not feel threatened. As Dolly described it, he had had this show for years. He didn't need me to have his hit show. He wasn't expecting me to be all that I was either. When he hired me as a singer, he was just hiring what he thought was a right pretty little girl but I was a serious writer. He didn't know that. I was a serious entertainer. He didn't know that. He didn't know how many dreams I had. 
It was just one of those relationships where you hated him one day, you loved him the next, and it just got so intermingled and so wadded up. It was like a marriage of a sort. He would say, this is my show, I made you. And I'd say, I know, but this is my life, and yeah, you've made me, you've made me mad. At some point, Dolly thought, I'm going to break myself if I don't go. Because all we were doing was fighting, and it just wasn't working. I couldn't think, I couldn't sleep, I couldn't eat. He wasn't happy either. We had to do something. That's when she went home and wrote, I will always love you. The story goes that the next day she walked right into his office, told him to sit down, and she sang it for him. When she finished, he told her, that's the best song you ever wrote. I guess you can go if I can produce the record. So he produced the record, and she left. But that wasn't the end of it. Marty Stewart said that Porter Wagner capsized after all those years of being the king. His ego was bruised and his heart was broke. The fallout was described as a hillbilly divorce and it was awful. Porter went on a public spree of character defamation in interviews saying that he would never trust her with anything, that she stole from him, that she lived in a fairyland, claiming that Dolly would turn her back on her own family if it would help herself. Porter ended up suing Dolly, claiming that he was entitled to manage her for five years and that during that time she couldn't enter into any contract concerning, concerning her musical career without his written approval and that he was entitled to a percentage of her earnings. Dolly decided to settle for a million dollars. It would take her years and years to pay him the money. But as Jad Abumrad observed, what is so remarkable about this story is how it ends. The good thing about a divorce is that unhappy people can walk away from an unhappy thing, but so often that's not what happens. People get stuck in the ugly part, but not here. Dolly paid him the million dollars over time. Then in 1981, Porter got dropped from his label and Dolly heard that he'd made some bad investments and that the IRS had come after him, saying that he owed them half a million dollars. As Dolly recounts, he fell on hard times and he needed the money. At the time, I had the money and I thought a good way for me to thank him for the good he had done in my life, regardless of everything else, was to buy the publishing company and then just give it back to him. So that's what she did. Porter Wagner died in 2007 in a hospice facility in Nashville. And in his last days, it was Dolly who sat with him and held his hand. For most people, her forgiveness is unimaginable after all that hurt and pain. But as Dolly said, forgiveness? Forgiveness is all there is. Which sounds a lot like how Jesus answered 
And Peter asked him how many times we should forgive. Not seven times, but I tell you 77 times. This is not ranked as Jesus' most popular saying. It's probably not in the top 10. This is not what people go to when quoting Jesus. And we know why. Forgiveness is hard. People find it much easier to be angry and vengeful. In an essay in the New York Times, author Mary Gordon wrote that anger is exciting and enlivening and forgiveness is quiet. And like small agriculture or the domestic arts, it is labor intensive and yielding modest fruit. Forgiveness isn't our first instinct for this very reason. It is challenging and relentless work. 77 times, really, Jesus? Endless forgiveness? But theologian Douglas Hare explains that 77 times is probably an allusion to Genesis chapter 4, verse 24, where Lamech proudly boasts to his wives that he will avenge himself 77-fold on anyone who dares to attack him. Forgiveness is thus presented as the antonym of revenge. Followers of Jesus must renounce the very human intention of getting even with someone who repeatedly injures them. We are called to be Lamech's polar opposite. But forgiveness is not to be confused with sentimental toleration of hurtful behavior. It does not mean staying in an abusive relationship. As anti-apartheid leader Archbishop Desmond Tutu wrote, forgiveness is not weakness. It is not subversion of justice. It is not forgetting. It is not easy. Rather, forgiveness is freedom. It is wholeness and healing. It is releasing what we cannot survive if we hold on. Until we can forgive the person who harmed us, that person will hold the keys to our happiness. That person will be our jailer. When we forgive, we take back control of our own fate and our feelings. We become our own liberators. We don't forgive to help the other person. We don't forgive for others. We forgive for ourselves. Forgiveness, in other words, is the best form of self-interest. This is true both spiritually and scientifically. Archbishop Tutu goes on, whether it is the tormentor who tortured me brutally, the spouse who betrayed me, the boss who passed me over for a promotion, or the driver who cut me off during my morning commute, I face the same choice, to forgive or to seek revenge. We face this choice of whether or not to forgive as individuals, as families, as communities, and as a deeply connected world. The quality of human life on our planet is nothing more than the sum total of our daily interactions with each other. Each time we help and each time we harm, we have a dramatic impact on our world. Because we are human, some of our interactions will go wrong, 
and then we will hurt or be hurt or both. It is the nature of being human and it is unavoidable. Forgiveness is the way we set those interactions right. It is the way we mend tears in the social fabric. It is the way we stop our human community from unraveling. If there is anything we know to be true, it is that violence begets violence, harm begets harm. And this is why forgiveness is all there is, why we must work at it constantly, how we might be able to say to another person, I will always love you, not just seven times, but 77 times. Jesus is asking us to choose a different path. As he says, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It is important to note the progression in Dolly's song. It took her three verses to get to that kind of pray for those who persecute you. The first verse speaks of pain. The second verse acknowledges the grief. Then the th comes the third verse, the verse Dolly calls the Porter verse. It isn't until the third verse that she is able to offer hopes of well-being for Porter. Forgiveness, after all, isn't like waving a magic wand. So it is with us. It may take us three verses to get there too, but as the saying goes, we make the road by walking. Let us go with a word of blessing. And now, may the power of God and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ, which really does surpass all our understanding, go with every one of us, abiding in us, lifting us up, and making us whole. Let us go in peace, pray for peace, wage a little peace through forgiveness, and love one another every single other. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Laurie Walkie, Associate Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. Mayflower also has a full church school for children of all ages available during the 11 a.m. service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.